Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, 100 Bible Verses Everyone Should Know by Heart, and Then Sings My Soul. His newest book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, is a biblical tour through American history and releases in February of 2020, but can be pre-ordered now. Visit robertjmorgan.com for more details and for free downloads related to this resource or pre-order from your favorite online retailer. And now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, this is Robert J. Morgan talking about my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. Trying to explain American history without the Bible is like the Library of Congress without any documents. Had there been no Bible, there would be no America as we know it. Modern revisionist historians may try to erase the Bible's influence on American life, but the story is too deeply embedded and too amazingly wonderful. In previous podcasts, I've talked about the Pilgrims, the Puritan Migration, the Great Awakening, and the American Revolution. And now I want to introduce you to a fascinating woman whose simple life has just sent the historians into fits. Her name is Mary Bell Washington, and she became the mother of America's first president, George Washington. Throughout her life, she had a rather complicated relationship with her son, George, and after her death, she was admired as a hero and as a woman who overcame tremendous obstacles to raise the nation's founding father. At least, that's the way that she was viewed for many years. But more recently, historians have decided that she was a rather despicable woman, and she is now often presented in negative and rather unfair terms. I mean, after all, she did raise one of the greatest men of the ages. Why is it that modern historians are wanting to disparage her? Martha Sexton opens her recent biography of Mary Washington with these words. Mary Ball Washington was orphaned early, grew up poor, and was later widowed with five children under the age of 12 to support. She did the best she knew for her family in the harsh world of the 18th century Chesapeake. She poured her exceptional vitality, deep religious convictions, and unflagging persistence into her first son, George. We still admire him for the honorable way he used those qualities to create a country and a government. Why has she not received historians' respect for her years of lonely and challenging work? That's the question, isn't it? Well, here's her story. Mary was born in the early 1700s in the Tidewater of Virginia, and from the beginning she suffered tremendous losses. Her father died when she was an infant, and her mother died when she was 12. She was taken in by her half-sister, but Mary largely had to raise herself. She didn't have very much emotional support as a teenager, but she did embrace the Anglican faith, and she learned the catechism, and she began to lean on the Lord for support. She also became a skilled horse rider and an expert dancer. At the age of 22, she married Augustine Washington. She was described as a strong and healthy young woman with light-colored hair, clear blue eyes, and a pleasant voice. The couple made their home to the east of Fredericksburg, Virginia. Their firstborn son, George, was born on, you know it, February 22nd, 1732. They moved closer to Fredericksburg, and the couple had five more children, one of whom died in infancy. 
Augustine also died, and Mary was left a young widow to raise her children alone. Now, there's one thing we cannot gloss over. From the time she was three years old until her death, Mary owned slaves. So did George, of course, and Thomas Jefferson and many of the other founding fathers who lived in the mid-American states. It's frankly hard for me to understand how people, especially those calling themselves Christians, fail to see the evil, the horror, the brutality, and the inhumanity of that. I can only understand it by comparing the similar blindness today's society has towards the evils of abortion. Future generations will look back with horror at what is happening in our nation today, the way that we look back with horror on slavery. Nothing excuses the degrading and discarding of human life, either through bondage or through killing the preborn children. But Mary was a product of her times with a worldview that was blind to the inhumanity of slavery. I don't understand it, I don't like it, but it was part of the social fabric of that time. And yet, Mary was a tough and resilient woman who, as a single mother, raised five children. She was strong-willed. In 1746, George wanted to join the Royal British Navy. But Mary, who had already lost her mother, father, husband, and child, was horrified at the prospect. At her insistence, he gave up his plan. George later said that his mother so beseeched him that he had to retrieve his packed bags from aboard ship and give up his intentions of becoming a sailor in the British Navy. Historians have criticized Mary for this. But how many mothers would allow their 14-year-old sons to go off and join the British Navy? It could not have been easy for Washington's mother. He ended up engaged in death-defying military missions during the French and Indian War, and as his popularity grew and the dangers grew upon him, so did Mary's anxiety. There was nothing easy about raising that young man. In 1771, Mary moved into a house George purchased for her in Fredericksburg. It was near her daughter Betty, with whom she was exceedingly close. She had a beautiful garden which is kept in her memory to this day. The house, which is open today to the public, sits on a corner lot with two parlors in the front and a dining room in the back that looks out onto the garden. Behind the garden is an orchard. Nearby was a formation of rocks, and this is where Mary loved to go for private prayer. She loved her Bible, and she constantly read a handful of rich and personal devotional books. When I use the phrase devotional books, don't picture a short little book with nice devotional thoughts. These were virtual textbooks, each with hundreds of pages printed in small type. But she read them over and over again. One was entitled, The Christian Life from Its Beginnings to Its Consummation and Glory, by the English devotional writer John Scott. The extant copy of this book in her library shows her name written in it in 1728. She would have been 19 or 20 years old at the time. Here is a sample from Scott's devotional book. As for the end of the Christian life, we are assured from Scripture that it is no other but heaven itself, the state of endless bliss and happiness which God has prepared in the world above for all those who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. That is the end of the Christian life, and it's evidence from hence because it is everywhere proposed by our Savior and the apostles as the chief good of the Christian and the supreme motive to all Christian virtue. 
For so St. John, that bosom favorite of our Savior, assures us, this is the promise which Christ has promised to us even everlasting life. He who believes in this has life eternal. Scott went on to say in his devotional book, Now we are no longer to look upon this world as our native country, but as a foreign land, and so we are to reckon ourselves strangers and pilgrims upon earth. He said it may be your lot to take up the cross and follow your Savior through the dark lane of suffering, and then you will need a world of patience and courage. He wrote, The holiest service that we can do is an honest calling, though it be but to plow or to dig, if done in obedience and conscience of Christ's command. Scott suggested having devotional times of prayer and biblical reflection both morning and evening, and one family member remembered how Mary, even in her latter years, worked hard to maintain her private times with the Lord. Mary's favorite devotional book was entitled Contemplations Moral and Divine by Matthew Hale. Her husband gave it to her, and she signed her name in it after her marriage. Hell acknowledges that life is full of trouble and that our consolation is heaven, but he says that we should learn to remain cheerful even amid the burdens of life. Let me give you just a sentence out of this massive work. Quote, As thus the knowledge of Jesus Christ and Him crucified excels all other knowledge, and so in comparison thereof all other knowledge upon a right judgment is as nothing, so the soul, being rightly convinced thereof, sets a higher price upon that knowledge than upon all other knowledge besides. Unquote. The Bible and these devotional books were her library, and with these she raised her children and taught her grandchildren. Matthew Held's book, Contemplations Moral and Divine, was the primary text she used in raising her firstborn son, and he was prone to quote some of the lessons throughout the rest of his life. When George became the commander-in-chief of the American Revolutionary Army, Mary must have been proud of him, but she worried constantly about his safety. She saw little of him during the Revolution. At one point, the war drew dangerously close, and since it would have been unthinkable for the mother of George Washington to be captured by the British, she had to flee with her family to the mountains. She was unwell, elderly, and she had to live in very difficult conditions, and she didn't see her son for years. But Mary was also always worried about having enough money to support her rather simple lifestyle, and George often became exasperated with her request for funds. He finally wrote her a little note that seems to me to be unfortunate, insensitive, and downright rude. He told her she'd just have to move in with one of her other children. Well, Mary was a plain woman with little education. She liked the social skills that Washington had acquired, and he was hesitant to have her at Mount Vernon because he was afraid she would be out of place there. He suggested she go live with Betty. She battled anxiety all of her life, Mary did. For example, from childhood she had been deathly afraid of thunderstorms, and even during her last years they produced acute anxiety in her. Once in old age, she was spending time with her daughter Betty when a thunderstorm blew in. Suddenly, Betty realized her mother was missing. She found her upstairs kneeling in prayer. Getting up, Mary confessed that she had been, quote, striving for years against this weakness. For you know, Betty, my trust in God is strong, but sometimes my fears are stronger than my faith. Mary Washington lived just long enough to learn that her son had been chosen the first president of the United States. 
and he traveled to visit her, knowing that she was ill, and he received her blessing as he traveled on to New York City for the inauguration. Her last days were peaceful. Her biographer wrote, Mary resumed gardening and reading and sometimes recreated the meditative state she achieved in thinking about God's ways and His will, reciting well-known passages from her devotional book and reading her family Bible to the grandchildren. She continued to visit her beloved large flat rock surrounded by trees where, according to her step-grandson and others, she communed with her Creator in humiliation and prayer. One grandson remembered her teaching lessons about natural history, finding illustrations in their surroundings. She would tie the natural world around them to the biblical story of creation. Much later, one grandchild spoke for the others when he said, There was a spell over them as they looked at their grandmother's uplifted face and its sweet expression of perfect peace. Mary loved tea and she trained all of her children to serve and drink tea in the afternoon, a pastime she enjoyed with her grandchildren. In 1789, Mary was found to be dying of breast cancer. Having studied the Bible and her devotional books for 60 years, she seemed unworried and eager to go on to heaven. In August 1789, she stopped speaking, and she lapsed into a coma. She died in 1789. She was about 80 years old. Shortly after her death, the United States Congress passed a resolution to build a monument in her memory. President Andrew Jackson came to lay the cornerstone, but it was never completed, and for 60 years it lay in a state of dilapidation. Finally, the scattered pieces were hauled off, and a cornerstone for a new monument was laid in 1894 and dedicated by President Grover Cleveland. It stands today almost a miniature model of Washington's monument in D.C., it's called the only monument in the United States erected to a woman by woman, by the Daughters of the American Revolution. A recent biographer, Martha Sexton, wrote, Her piety gave her certainty, and as she grew older, she also grew in gravity rooted in her religious convictions. She was the woman, the mother, the one who looked to the Lord, read her Bible and her devotional books, which built character, into the son who became the father of the nation. For more information about the hand of God in American history, check out my book 100 Bible Verses That Made America and my other resources at robertjmorgan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Clearly Media, edited by Elijah Rowe, music by Jordan Davis. And for more information and resources, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.